This morning we begin a new series of study for the next uh, couple of months. We are studying this time the book of Second Thessalonians, so I encourage you to turn there. It's always helpful, I think, to have the Scripture open and that you can check and see, is what he said really true? Uh, Paul commended the Bereans for that, and I commend you for that as well. Check out what the Scripture says. That's what matters. And uh, I do my best to be faithful to the book, but if I ever miss it, let me know. I get a lot of emails and a lot of mail as a pastor of a church. Stuff is always coming across my desk and across my computer. Much of it advertisements, and uh, there's no shortage of advertisements that are promoting books and conferences and websites and magazines and videos and study series and all these and newsletters and all kinds of things that are all promoting to pastors information that they want to sell you or whatever on how to grow to be a dynamic and effective church. And almost invariably, when you look at the literature or you go to the conference or you read the books or you watch the videos, the examples of the churches that they point to are churches with features like phenomenally fast growth or large congregations, impressive facilities, streamlined organizational structures, innovative programs, state-of-the-art technology, a dynamic and charismatic, not necessarily the speaking in tongues type, but the, uh, the well-likable you know, uh, pastor, the guy that attracts people. And, and they have all of these different things because those are the things that normally catch our attention, capture our mind as we evaluate churches. In the passage before us today, we find a surprising statement. Look down in verse 4, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. It's a surprising statement, but it's also one, wouldn't it be great, by the way, to hear the Apostle Paul say, Chapel of the Lake, We boast about you in the churches of God. Would that be pretty amazing? And he says that here about this church. But it's a surprising statement first because the apostle says he's boasting. And usually most of us, when we hear the word boast or boasting, we think that's not a good thing. But it must be good here because the apostle Paul is doing it. And so that's unusual. What's also unusual is that he's talking about this church and he's boasting about them. As we'll see this morning, when he boasts about this church, it is not the things that we might think he would boast about. You see, when God gets excited about a church, and I think it's not a stretch to say when the Apostle Paul is about excited about a church here, God is excited about a church. As the Apostle is representing in this 
in this way as he's planting churches and writing Scripture. He is representing God. And as he writes Scripture, the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. This is the Word of God. So we can assume when he's excited about this church, God is. When God gets excited about a church, I think if you read the report card, we will find it's very different than what we would expect. It's not about large, a large congregation. They weren't. It's not about impressive buildings. They didn't have any. It's not about a well-known dynamic preacher. We have no record of even who their pastor was, if they even had one at this point. We could go down the list of all the things we think represent a successful, thriving, dynamic church, and I dare to say most of those won't show up on God's scorecard. And so I think we'll do well this morning to pay attention to what is said here about this church because you've already indicated your heart is like mine. I would love to be a church that God says, I'm proud of you. Proud of you. Well, before we dig into the passage, we probably ought to very quickly review a little bit of the background of this church of the Thessalonians. Paul was off on his second missionary journey with Silas. They began there in Antioch with the intention to go through Asia Minor to visit the churches that they planted, the churches they started on his first missionary journey. And in time, they had gone through Asia Minor, were in Troas, and were wanting to go other places. They were prevented from that, and God prompted them through, you'll recall, a vision to go to Macedonia, to go across the Aegean Sea into Europe, into the region of what we would say is northern Greece today, which was Macedonia then. Their first stop in Macedonia was Philippi. Some people there, through Paul's preaching and teaching, some people there responded to the gospel, became believers in Christ, But eventually, the preaching of Paul got him and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. You may recall the story, it's there in Acts chapter 16, of their time in prison and how the Philippian jailer was a key thing there as well as the jailhouse rock as God sent an earthquake. And you recall the story, the jailer is about to kill himself because he realizes the doors of the prison have flung open and and he's afraid all the prisoners have escaped. And they say, no, we're all here. And um, you know the story. I won't go through the whole. It's a great story. If you don't know the story, Acts chapter 16. Go read it this afternoon. Chapter 17. Paul and Silas and Timothy is also traveling with them. They move down the road from Philippi about a hundred miles to the south, southwest to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica, an important town, the capital of this Roman province of Macedonia. It is a port city, so it was located on a, in a natural harbor, which made it an important port city. It also was on the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was the equivalent, uh, I suppose, in that day to 
seven, Interstate 70 right outside our door. The major east-west thoroughfare across our country. That's, what, that's basically what the Ignatian Way was then. So Thessalonica in Macedonia, a capital city, about a quarter of a million people, on the major road thoroughfare, and it's a major port. It's a significant place. Paul was only in Thessalonica for a short time. We don't know exactly how long, possibly just as little as just over a couple of weeks, no longer than a few months. And yet in that very short time, many people came to faith in Christ, including some Jews, including some Gentile proselytes to Judaism, including some leading women of the city, including some idol-worshipping pagans. A lot of folks had come together and, and a small church was born in just that short time that he was there. But Paul had to leave Thessalonica long before he was ready to go. Acts chapter 17 goes on to tell us that some of the Jews, the leading Jews in the city, were jealous and upset about Paul and his preaching and these folks who were, who were coming to faith in Christ. And they stirred up trouble and stirred up a riot against Paul and against the Christians there in Thessalonica. And Paul and his team were forced to leave town in the middle of the night. So they left. Sometime later, they end up in Athens. And they've been gone a little while from Thessalonica. And Paul is concerned about the believers there, these young Christians. They had to leave so suddenly and just as little babies in Christ. And so he sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica to go up there, check things out, see what you can do to encourage and, and teach the believers there and bring me back a report. So Timothy goes and uh, Paul is there in Athens and Sometime along the way, Paul moves on to Corinth, and it's likely there where Paul is when Timothy comes back with the report from the, the folks in Thessalonica, the church there. And, and Paul then, after listening to Timothy, sits down and writes a letter to the Thessalonians. That's the first Thessalonians. We studied that book here about three years ago. If you want to go back and listen, you can. It should be on the website, I think, and you can... Go back and listen to those messages. But apparently now it's just a few months after he sent that first letter. Hasn't been very long at all. But a few months later, Paul gets another report from the church in, in Thessalonica. And that brings us to where we are here. He sits down to write a letter because he has become aware of a few issues that have arisen there in the church. And we'll learn what those are as we go through our study. In Paul's first letter, he commended this church a lot. Matter of fact, as we went through that study, we called it a model church because Paul held up this church in Thessalonica as a model of what churches should be. Even though they were just an infant church, a baby church, he said, folks, this is what a church should look like. Now, as we come to this letter, Paul still has high praise for this church, even though some time has passed. 
He still has high praise. Even though there's some issues that have arisen, none of these bring about Paul's rebuke or any criticism of this church. Paul still is has high praise. Matter of fact, as we read a moment ago, he says, we boast about you among the churches. And why does Paul boast? What's the point? The point of boasting, the reason that boasting here is not bad, is the point of boasting isn't to puff anyone up. It's not to puff up the folks here in Thessalonica. You guys are awesome. Now, we might, like, we might think of that as encouragement, but it tends to lead to pride. And that's not the purpose here isn't to build pride. The purpose, rather, is to, as verse 3 says, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. It's to draw attention to what God has done. Even as last week we celebrated as a church 50 years since our founding. Our intention in that was not to draw praise to ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and wow, aren't we a great church and haven't we done really well. Our purpose was to say, God, thank you. It's amazing what you have done among us. That is Paul's purpose in boasting here is to say, look what God is doing among these folks in Thessalonica. And the purpose also is, I'm sure, to be an encouragement to these folks in Thessalonica. But even more, as he was saying in 1 Thessalonians, they are to be a model church. And they boast to these other churches to say, these things that are going on in Thessalonica ought to be going on in you as well. And so with that in mind, we want to come here this morning to see what is it that caused the Apostle Paul to boast about this church? What is it about this baby church that caused God to get excited about this church? And I want us to notice in the first five verses of 1 Thessalonians this morning, five characteristics of a praiseworthy church. Okay, of a church that is worthy of the apostles' praise, of a church that receives the commendation, the approval of God. Begin by just reading the first two verses together. Follow along as I read. Paul, Silvanus, by the way, that's just another rendering of the name Silas. Silas is Hebrew, Silvanus, Greek. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Timothy is part of their missionary team. He joined them back when they were in Asia Minor and they came through Lystra and young Timothy joined on. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to dig into everything we can this morning. I just want to hit these five key points that I think are significant points about what makes a praiseworthy church. And the first one may seem like a silly point. It may seem like an obvious, we don't need to mention it, but I think it's not. And that is, they are true believers. See, the Greek word for church, the word translated in our Bibles as church, the Greek word is ecclesia. It means, most of you know, the called out ones. 
And it's used by Jesus, it's used by the New Testament writers, meaning often those who are called out from the world by Jesus Christ, those who have been called to Him, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, they are true believers in Christ. They are called out ones, called out from the world. And that is most often how we use this word. But sadly, there are what I would nickname Chino churches, churches in name only. Okay. Churches that might be filled with people, but they are filled with people who have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Churches that meet together and they have emotional religious experiences, but they do not know God. They don't have a relationship with Him. They may have religious rituals. They may talk religious talk. They may have social gatherings and they have social programs and they may have social or political agendas, but the gospel has been neglected or ignored or forgotten. Such churches exist today, but they're not just a modern phenomenon. You may remember the church of Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, seven letters to seven churches. Jesus says to the church of Sardis, He says, I know your deeds. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Why are they a dead church? Because they have no life of the Spirit of God in them because they do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They're a dead church because they are a church in name only. That's not the case here in Thessalonica. This church, verse 1 says, they are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church are people who are in Christ. They are in God. They have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That church in name only problem, did you know that was almost the case here at the chapel when we started in our early days? Our first pastor's widow, Nancy, she was our church secretary for so many years, dear friend. And she related to me several times the story of how in those early weeks of the church, before it was even officially chartered as a church, when they were just meeting together and they had elected George Leader because he was a good talker as a salesman. And she said, George took the responsibility of leading those services, it weighed on him heavily. And it moved him to start looking into the Bible. It took a couple of weeks, but he went and bought one. (laughs) Okay? And I say that not to be funny, but it is funny. But then he couldn't understand it. But you know God worked through that. To bring him to hear and to understand for the first time the gospel. 
the good news of salvation through Christ. And George realized he wasn't a Christian. And he accepted Christ as his Savior. And then as he studied and he taught the Scriptures, he led other people to Christ, many others to Christ, including, as we heard last week in their testimony, Ken and Linda Chilton. God moved it from some well-meaning religious people who didn't know Christ, many of them, some of them may have, but many of them didn't. He moved this to a church where people are going, yeah, <laughs> they know the gospel because they, they believed Jesus Christ. What grace God has done in the founding of His church. The first and prime characteristic of a church that God is proud of is it is filled with people who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And therefore, people who now have a relationship with Him. It's not saying that unbelievers aren't welcome to come in the doors. But the focus of every church is the gathering of believers. As we said earlier, to send us out because the mission field is out there. We don't try to bring the mission field in here. Okay? In here is where we equip us as the body to go do the work of the ministry. That's a philosophical position of this church because I think it's the biblical position. Well, all of that raises a question, though, this morning, just to make sure. Ask the question, are you saved? Are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? Do you know for certain if you died today, you would go to heaven? I hope you do. If you don't, I mean, you can be here this morning and be well-meaning, well-intentioned. You can be here this morning and be religious. You can be here this morning and, well, you're here. <laughs> but being in church, as Jim Cain used to say, doesn't make you, in a, make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Being saved isn't about... Being in church, it's not about giving money to God. It's not about doing good things. It's not about anything that we can or must do for God because we can't do anything, the Bible tells us, to help ourselves. It's all about receiving what He has done for us through Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved, Ephesians chapter 2 says. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Being saved, being a Christian, is about receiving a gift. By the way, you can't earn a gift. All you can do is receive it. The only way to heaven, the only way to the Father, Jesus said, John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to heaven by faith and trust in Him. And I had to say all that this morning, even though most of us have heard that many times. If there's one person here this morning who never understood that, I hope you understand that this morning. And I hope that you will place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I invite you to do that because Jesus calls for you to do that. The second characteristic of a church 
that is a praiseworthy church. They are first, they are true believers. Secondly, they are growing in faith. Look at verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. It says their faith is growing, and not just a little, but exceedingly. Most of us will recognize the prefix hyper. We know that when it's attached to a word, it's over the top. Hyper this, hyper that, it's over the top. It's a Greek prefix. Straight out of the Greek, hyper means over the top. It's above and beyond. And it's right here that prefix hyper is tied to the word to grow. So it is hyper growing, hyper growth. He says this church is their faith is hyper growing. It's growing abundantly. Far more than you would normally expect. It's one of those where you sit back and go, wow. You and I are saved, as we just said, by faith in Jesus Christ. As we put our faith and trust in Him, we are saved. Our relationship with God begins with that faith, with that trust in Christ. But like a seedling plant or like a newborn baby, the expectation is that it's going to grow. And God expects that faith to grow in us. Old story told about Albert Einstein at a dinner party. A young neighbor was sitting next to him and during the meal she asked this white-haired scientist, she said, what are you actually by profession? And Einstein replied, he said, I devote myself to the study of physics. And this girl looked at him in astonishment and she said, you you at you mean to say that you study physics at your age? She said, I finished my study last year. <laughs> May I say that there's a difference in how some view faith and how we ought to. You see, faith is not a course that we are to take once and label it complete and put it aside. Rather, it is to be a way of life. God intends for our faith to grow in us, to grow and to transform us from the inside out. And that was happening at warp speed with these Thessalonian believers. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are standing back and they're amazed. And they're praising God for God's work among them in growing the faith of these Thessalonians. Which perhaps begs the question, what about our faith? In 2021, has our faith grown? Has our faith grown since last year and the year before and the year before? Or has it stagnated? Or is our faith growing with hyper-growth? Which then raises another question. Well, if my faith is supposed to grow, how is there anything we can do to grow our faith? That would seem like a reasonable question. How can we grow our faith or can we? Well, let me ask even another question. What is faith? Well, I think in its simplest definition, biblically speaking, 
In its simplest definition, faith is believing God. Which implies three things, I think, when we think about that. If faith is believing God, then before we can believe God, we need to know what God says. If we're going to believe what God says, we have to know what He says. And for us to know what He says, we have to be learning what God has said. It means we need to dig into what God has said, His Word, to find out what's here. So if you and I are going to grow in our faith, we need to grow in our knowledge of what has God said. Which is why I encourage us not just to come on Sunday mornings, but to get involved in at least one, if not many other opportunities through the week to be learning God's Word. Read it on your own. Get involved in a Bible study. We have a number of Bible studies for young people, for, for men, for women. Attend Sunday school. They just new classes started up today. You can start in next week. You won't have missed much. If you're not in the Sunday school habit, I think you should be. Get in a home group. Some other places, dig into, make it a priority to dig into God's Word. Because we have to know what God says if we're going to then believe what God says. And it's possible to know what God says and not believe it. By the way, you can look around and there are all kinds of of folks in our culture today, in our country today, who say, I believe God, I'm a Christian. And then you point out certain things that the Bible says to them and they say, well, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. Enough said. I don't have to say anything. If we're going to grow our faith, we need to know what God says. Then we need to believe. We simply need to receive it. I may not agree. I may not like it. It may go against my natural inclinations, but if God says it, I'm going to receive it. I'm going to believe it. And then comes the next part. Act on it. Do it. So when God says, do this, even though I may not like it, I'm going to do that. I submit that if we do those three things, we will grow our faith. Our faith will grow. Know God's Word. Receive it. Believe it. Act on it. That's exactly what this church was doing. And they were doing it at warp speed. They were hanging on every word that God said and they were going out and doing it. They were bold. Third characteristic of a church that God is proud of is found in the second half of verse 3. Not only were their faith growing, it says, verse 3, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. They were increasing in love. Like their faith, their love was increasing not just a little, but it was increasing a lot. This, this word increasing in love, some translations say it's abounding. Some were saying it grows greater and greater. Some translations say it grows more and more. The idea is yeah, there, these folks are really growing in love. Among the things that God will change in us when we grow in faith, and by the way, when we grow in faith, these next few things, I think, just flow out of it. But among the things that will flow out of that change in our life as we grow in our faith is God is going to grow us in our love. You'll recall in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said to His disciples there, John chapter 13, Jesus said, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, the mark of those who are believers in me, the mark of those who are followers of me, 
You should be able to pick them out because they love one another. What that says is the love that that we're to have for one another is to be a very, uh, it's not some emotional feeling, not some sappy sentimentality, but is a practical, real love that gets in to the dirt of our lives, to the nitty-gritty. It shows up in real life. Note also the measure, the standard for this love that Jesus said. He says, you're to love others as I have loved you. That's a high standard, a high calling. It's the type of love that chooses selflessness over selfishness. As Philippians 2 says, that we have that kind of attitude that, like Jesus had, where he says, you consider others more important than yourself. Where you look to the interests of others over and above your own interests. It's the type of love that 1 Corinthians describes, which is is a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that is not jealous or that is not rude. It's a a love that's not self-seeking. It's a love that's not easily angered. It's the kind of love that doesn't keep a list of wrongs suffered, a list of offenses against us. Rather, it forgives the kind of love Galatians chapter 5.13 describes as the love that serves others. We could go on describing what that kind of love looks like because the Bible is full of describing what real love is. It's not just emotions. It is the decision to treat others as Scripture calls us in love. point is... This love is real and it's tangible and it blossoms and flourishes among people who are walking with God and growing in their faith. Because love comes from God. He is love. It comes from Him. He's the source of love. We love because He first loved us and He's the one who gives us the ability to love and He's the one who's busy resetting our hearts from selfishness to love. It's easy to love people in theory. Have you noticed that? It's just difficult when you get into the particulars. As Linus famously said in the old Charlie Brown cartoons, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. We love mankind in general, it's just when it gets to individual people, when it gets to that neighbor and that co-worker and that person over there, and when it gets to our husband or our wife or, you know, whatever, that's where the trouble starts. But this love shows up in real life with the people in the church, the people down and across the pew from you and across the room from you. This kind of love shows up as well at home in the way that we treat one another, husbands, wives, children, parents, brothers, sisters. We could all agree that loving others can be hard, can't we? You need help with that? Let me give you a couple of suggestions, by the way. First is this. If you struggle with loving others, number one, ask God for help. Pray about it to God. Say, God, I need help, particularly with this person. (laughs) We need His help, and He'll give it to us. Secondly, go back to the point above this where we talk about growing our faith. Dig into God's Word. Dare to believe that He means what He says. And then dare to put it into practice. 
I guarantee if you start doing that, He's going to start growing love in you. Just as with these folks, they were loving each other very well. And I think it's because they were growing in their faith very quickly and deeply. Fourthly, look at verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. The fourth characteristic of a praiseworthy church is that they stand firm in suffering. I have a feeling the suffering that he's talking about here is not what you and I generally would label as suffering. Oh no! They are out of hazelnut creamer for our coffee. Oh, life is hard. You know? Oh no! They had donuts downstairs, but they were stale. They were left over from last week because Pastor overbought. You know, we view that as suffering, don't we? You know, oh, the pool is not heated. You know, whatever. That's suffering. That's not what it was for these dear folks, just as it's not for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Millions of our brothers and sisters around the world. Notice it says here in verse 4, it says, Your steadfastness in faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. The language there indicates their sufferings are many and they are severe. And most of them are coming at the hands of people who hate them and despise them. Persecutors. And yet, he says they are steadfast. Rather than persecution driving them away from God, their persecution is driving them to God. May I say, by the way, that is exactly what God aims to do with suffering in our lives. And by the way, even though we don't have, most of us have not endured any great persecution, we, most all of us, have endured some suffering. And God uses it all for the same in our life. He's intending to drive us back to Him. But we tend to look at suffering as something to be avoided at all costs, don't we? Because I hate pain. I hate discomfort. I hate suffering. And we want to avoid it at all costs. But the point here, this is they are steadfast in suffering. And the steadfastness means that they, it means literally to come under and to endure under. Rather than squirming trying to get out, it's, under, it's saying, okay, God has put it here. Rather than fighting it, we're going to embrace it. Doesn't mean we love suffering. What it means is we love what the suffering is going to do and what it is doing. And so it's not just passively hanging on. Maybe we can hang on. It's saying, okay, God, don't let me miss anything. If we're on for this ride, let me get it all the benefit here that you have intended. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. That's what Paul means when he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. It's that same word, by the way, steadfastness. 
James chapter 1, well known for talking about trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Same word there in back in Second Thessalonians. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, God is working through our sufferings to build and to strengthen us. Warren Wearsby writes, he says, an easy life can lead to a shallow faith. So true. He goes on to say, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. If it won't stand up to testing, you can't count on it. And he says, lastly, a third quote. I just loved these quotes. He said, tribulation and persecution our God's way to strengthen our faith. Exactly what we just said. Well, key to this young church enduring patiently in persecution and in affliction is the fifth characteristic that they have. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What I notice out of that is that this is a church that has a kingdom focus, a kingdom hope. You see, as we've just said, they have, they understand that their sufferings are not the result of God's neglect of them. They are not afflicted because God has abandoned them. Rather, they are afflicted because they understand that they're afflicted because God is at work in them. Their sufferings, their their afflictions, their persecution is, is not a result of God's absence, but rather it's an indication that He is present with them. See, because even more than God is working in them, He is even more preparing them for what is coming. He's preparing them for His kingdom. Even as they right now, Paul says, even as you are suffering for the kingdom. There it is right there. They know that the reason they are suffering is because of where they're headed. They know the reason they are suffering is because they have a connection with God. They are His children. He is our Father, they said there verse 1. God is our Father, and we are destined for His kingdom. And that is why we are suffering right now. And rather than fight that, we embrace that, because what is God, God is doing right now is He is preparing us for that. And since they know that their destiny in the kingdom of God has already been secured through Jesus Christ, they also understand that whatever difficulties they endure right now, they are only temporary. And you know what? We'll survive. We can hang on because this is only temporary. As Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. These people are able to endure suffering and persecution because they are living for the coming kingdom. And while we're here, we're on mission, whatever that means, whatever that entails. We're going to study more about that next time, about 
the kingdom and enduring. That's next week in the next verses. Five characteristics of this marvelous church. They are true believers. They are growing in their faith. They are increasing in love. They stand firm in suffering and they have a kingdom hope. You know, the marvelous thing there, as I look at that list, this is a church that God is proud of. Those are things within our grasp if we will embrace them. Father, and so we ask that you would grow these characteristics in us. Grow them in us individually. Grow them in us corporately. Because how it is our desire to be a church that you are proud of. To hear those words in the day when we stand before you in your kingdom. To hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, we want to be that church now that you are proud of. But we've got some work to be done in us. By your grace, Lord, would you be at work in us. Bring this about in us. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.